all of us, every single one of us, are created with a need to belong to something. It's just the way God made us. From the very beginning of time, when He created Adam and Eve in the garden, He created Adam, and, he, and, and as He was going through the creation process, He created the sun, and He said, this is good. He created the star, it's good. The water, it's good. The plants, it's good. The animals, the earth, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's good. And then he created man, and he looked at man, and man's aloneness, that he didn't have a partner on this world, and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And it wasn't good for Adam, and it's not a good for us. He created us with this need to have people in our lives. We grow best in the body of Christ when we grow together. It's in the midst of community. I shared with you a quote that I heard a pastor say in Nashville as he was resigning from his church. He said, when I created this church, I created it with this belief that everybody's welcome. Everybody. It doesn't matter where you are on your spiritual journey. It doesn't matter what you've gone through. It doesn't matter your financial status. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Everybody's welcome. Why is everybody welcome? It's because nobody's perfect. None of us. There's only one perfect man to walk walk on this earth, and his name was Jesus. And I'm sure we don't have a Jesus in this room. Well, we do have lots of Jesuses as followers of Jesus, but, but we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. And because none of us are perfect... Everybody's welcome. But the, but the most beautiful part is that everybody's welcome because nobody's perfect, but anything is possible. Because of the power of God residing in us, because of the Holy Spirit's power, ability to, to change, to create new life, everybody, any, everybody's welcome because anything is possible. Anything's possible. And we want to be a place where people can belong. Acts 2, 44 and 45 says all the believers met together constantly, shared everything they had, and daily the Lord added to those numbers those who were being saved. You see, we belong. Not only do we belong, um, but we believe. You see, we just don't want to be another country club. We don't want to just be another place where you can get a membership, even though we don't do membership, but, but where you can be a member and you can sit and you can say, these are my people. We just don't want to belong. We want to help you believe. We want to help you believe who Jesus is and what he can do for, his, for, for your life. We want to help you believe in God's grace and God's mercy and that life change is truly possible for anyone who surrenders their life to God. We want you to believe. Belonging's not enough. Belonging doesn't create life change. Believing in Jesus and who he is and what he can do for you. I put Romans 10, 9 in your, in your I don't know if I put these verses in here or not. But it says, Romans 10, 9, you can just write down and look it up later. It says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's about belonging. It's about believing. And then the third word that we're talking about today is the word become. Become. And here's a beautiful truth for you to hold on to. It's that who you are isn't who you always will be. It's that God wants to create life change inside of you. When you become a follower of Jesus, as the old creation is gone and the new creation has come. That you are made new. It's an idea. It's a transformation power. You're picturing a caterpillar going into a cocoon and coming out. Something completely new and completely different in a butterfly. And God is saying that's what happens in us 
when we become followers of Jesus, that he is radical. Transformation power starts something in us and we become new, just like Jesus. I kind of told you, I walked you through the, this, this disciple-making process that they had in the Old Testament, if you remember it or not. Basically, I was sharing with you this truth that Jesus wasn't the only rabbi to have disciples. That every rabbi that taught in every synagogue had a group of disciples that followed them around. And the way they chose those disciples is that a kid at a very young age, around an age of six or seven, would be taken to their local synagogue and they would be enrolled in school. And then after studying the Torah for a few years and memorizing it, become a part of their life, um, if the leader and the teacher of the synagogue felt like they had what it took to continue to study, they would be allowed to continue to study. But if they didn't, they would be sent home to learn their family trade, their family business, whatever that was, a carpenter, a fisherman, a dot, 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 a whatever, a tent maker, a net, whatever. They were sent home to learn the family trade. And then they would continue to learn. And this would happen two or three different times of weeding out the best of the best and sending people home that didn't have what it took, that, that wasn't staying up on their studies and wasn't showing the exceptional ability to understand the scriptures and not just the scriptures, but what other rabbis taught about other scriptures and, and the oral tradition of the church. I mean, they were engrossing themselves in God's holy word in the Old Testament. They were just absorbing these letters and this lifestyle from these rabbis that were being taught. And after they got to a certain age, they would approach a rabbi to become one of his disciples. And the rabbi would begin to question them. They would ask him about what they learned and what they understood. And they would ask him what other rabbis had taught and, and, and the oral tradition and, 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 and what, what true knowledge that they had. And, and if they had what it took, if they were on top of their game and really understood, you know, this, this scripture, if they were the best of the best, the rabbi would look at them and say, come, follow me. And they would follow everywhere, from town to town, from synagogue to synagogue. This rabbi, they lived their life in the shadow of this rabbi learning from him. And then as they grew and as they learned, at some point they would become a rabbi themselves and a teacher and teach what he taught. And they would make disciples that were underneath the teaching of this rabbi that they learned from. Does this make sense? And then we enter Jesus at the age of 30, going up to these two guys who were learning to be, they were apprentices under their father as fishermen. And they said, hey, fellas, James and John, take down your nets and come and follow me. The scripture says immediately James and John threw down their nets, left their family, and followed Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was a teacher. He was a rabbi. And he was looking at these men who over and over and over again throughout their lives heard, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. They heard a rabbi look at them and say, you have exactly what it takes. You can be just like me. I mean, feel the weight of the Son of God. They weren't quite sure who he was yet. But the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, looking at a group of men and women and followers and saying, you can be just like me. And that's what he meant. 
When he says, John 14, 12, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You can be just like me. Jesus 25, 40 says, I assure you, when you serve one of the least of these, you were doing it for me. You can be just like me. You can become like Jesus. And that's what we're talking about today. Becoming. Becoming. But what are we supposed to become? Just four words. These aren't aren't the only four words that we're supposed to become, but as I was preparing two weeks ago, and even in light of this week and the craziness that's happened in our nation, um, these four words ring true in my heart of what we're supposed to become. And the first word is this. That we're supposed to become love. Remember the song? I think it's the Beatles, right? Is it the Beatles? All we need is love. Do 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 do. All we need is love. Zal goes do 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 do. All we need is love. Am I the only one singing love? Love is all we need. And it's true. That's who Jesus was. The scripture actually says God is love. Period. Exclamation point. God is love. And if God is love, if Jesus is love, and we're supposed to become just like Jesus, then what that means is that we are supposed to become love. In a world that is desperate for it, in a world that is chaotic, in a week that has absolutely been ridiculously insane, it needs love. It needs love. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, You're supposed to, you can become just like me. When you become just like me, then you begin to love just like me. Paul wrote this in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. It's such a good verse. He says, watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, mostly what God does is love you. So keep company with Him and learn a life of, of love. Observe how Christ loved us. You might want to circle that. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of Himself to us. Love like that. You know, I don't like talking politics. I actually really hate it in the church. It has a tendency to be really divisive and create a lot of anger and distrust between people. But can I just tell you that this week on Facebook has been probably the most unloving week I've ever seen. It's so unloving. It's unloving for people. It's been unloving for the church. I say not one community. I mean the church as a whole. It's been really, really unloving. It's been a lot of, ah, we won, you lost. It's been a lot of, just get over yourself, stop your crying. It's been a lot of, um, you guys are evil, I can't believe you would vote for a person like that. It's been a lot of just stupid, stupid, stupid words. And there's a different commandment that God's given us, and that is to love. And what I believe is that in the chaos of what our country looks like right now, and it's pretty chaotic, now I'm sure for those who have been on a little bit longer journey than I have, there's probably been moments in our history that look a lot like this. And so it's kind of like, ah, you know, this is not something new, I'm sure. 
you know, from some of my older saints have experienced things like this. But what I do know is that this can give the church an unbelievable opportunity to love people. To really, truly love. And the thing that God has been teaching me this week that I've known, but I haven't always lived, is that love only happens up close. It only happens up close. Charity, charity can happen from a distance. Charity happens from a distance, but love only happens when you can put your arm around somebody. When you can draw them into a deep hug and you can listen to their story and you can grieve with them and mourn with them and weep with them and just show them love. Love happens up close. It doesn't happen from a distance. There's a scripture Paul wrote in Romans 12, 9-18 that God put on my heart this week and I've not been able to escape it. This one wasn't in my notes two weeks ago. But I think it means something strong for the church today. And this is what it says. Romans 12, 9-18 in the New Living Translation. It says, don't just pretend to love others. Now that sentence might preach a little bit. Don't just pretend to love others. We give a lot of lip service about loving people but actually giving hand service to that love and, and making it expressive is a, is a little bit different. It says, don't just pretend to love others. Really, really love them. He says, hate what is wrong, right? When we see wrong, when we see injustice, when we see evil, man, we're supposed to hate that. But we hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. There hasn't been a whole lot of honoring going on in our world this week. And there wasn't a whole lot of honoring going on in our world for the last eight years in our country. The Scripture says to honor. To honor each other. Then he goes on. Paul says, never be lazy. But work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. How many of you believe that our country is in trouble? It's okay. I do too at times. And the Lord says to be patient in trouble. And keep on praying. Keep on seeking God. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Take a deep breath after that one. It's not easy, is it? Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. And I, I know you're saying the same things that I'm saying that I say, but 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 Jared. You don't understand what they said about me. But Jared, you don't understand what they've done. But Jared, you don't understand. And I've been saying the same thing to God. God, but you don't understand. But God, you don't understand. And I, I think he does understand. I think he gets it completely. I think Jesus walked in this earth on a very traumatized or part of the country where the Jews were oppressed by Romans. And he was eventually crucified by Romans. And on the cross, as he's giving out his last, last breath, he looks at to the Father and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Now, if that doesn't sound like a blessing, I don't know what is. 
And so He asks us to do the exact same thing that Jesus did. And He says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. And weep with those who weep. Now this has been a very hard thing for me. It's not easy. My sinful flesh at times has a tendency to want to gloat when I win and someone else loses. And I'm not saying that I feel like a winner this week. Because I definitely don't. Um, But that's my sinful flesh in a lot of things. And if the Cowboys beat the Pittsburgh Steelers this week, there'll be a part of me that will want to gloat when John is weeping. But the Scripture says that we're supposed to weep with those who weep. And in our country, there's a lot of people weeping. It doesn't matter if it's justified or not justified. It doesn't matter if they haven't given somebody a chance. It doesn't matter. We weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. I could probably preach on that for a day, right? About what it means to live in harmony with people. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. (laughs) There's a few of us there that struggle with that from time to time. Never pay back evil with more evil, but do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Maybe that's a scripture we need to memorize. That Romans 12, 9 through 18, you know, life in the country that we're living in right now. So we're supposed to be love. We're supposed to be compassion. Matthew 14, 14 says, When Jesus landed and he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed that their sick. That word compassion, that actually that word in the Greek is splunknon. And what that means is actually to hurt in the gut. It actually has kind of a connotation of a movement. If you can picture that, it's not really pretty. But but you're being moved internally that you see this and you're so broken and you're so sad that it actually physically affects you in your stomach. And that's what it means to have compassion on people. And what if the church lived with that same of compassion with people in this world? I mean, that would be life-altering if we were compassionate like Jesus was, that we would hurt for people who are hurting, that it would move us deep down in the very center of who we are. Peter wrote, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. We're supposed to have humility. We're supposed to have humility. Philippians 2, 3, and 5 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others. You too must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Christ Jesus was humble. I mean, he was so humble that he was the King of kings, Lord of lords, reigned on high, and he took himself from God's holy throne, and he placed himself in the body of a man and left all that glory for all of this stench. Why? To serve and to love people. And Jesus says, I want you to live the same way, with humility. The last one is forgiveness. 
that we're supposed to become forgiveness just the way Jesus was. When you think of Christ on the cross, looking at that thief and saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. Looking at those men who've just stabbed him in the side with a spear and nailed his hands to a cross. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. I mean, that's a level of forgiveness that I can't understand. And God says, that's what I want you to be, though. Now, that doesn't mean we don't hurt. That doesn't mean that we don't have a grieving process that we have to go through to truly forgive people, but that we go through it so that we can forgive. It's important. Why is it so important? Matthew 6 says it this way. This is Jesus talking. And Jesus, this is like red letter stuff in your Bible, so it's pretty important. He says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. I'll just leave that there. God says, I want you to forgive. I want you to be a healing hand in this world. So how do we become this? How do we become like Jesus? And the first of all, first thing we have to understand is that we have to follow in his footsteps. Growing up in East Texas, my favorite thing to do with my dad was to go hunting. When he'd take me hunting, we started out with squirrel hunting. And then we took me bird hunting, and then we went deer hunting. But he, t- he started out teaching me how to squirrel hunt. And uh, we'd go out in the woods, and I'd have my little camo gear on, and my, ri- my orange vest, and my little 410 shotgun, that the only thing it could probably kill in this world is a squirrel. Everything else would be like, what was that? Um, and I would go in these woods, and my dad would say, okay, Jared, follow my footsteps. And he meant it. Because I don't know if you know this, I don't know if you've ever seen these things, but there are these things that fall from trees called leaves. I don't know, we don't have a whole lot of those here in Arizona, you know. But in East Texas, they're everywhere. And about this time of year, they're everywhere on the ground in the middle of those woods. And my dad grew up in those woods, and he knew how to hunt, and somebody had taught him. And he had this way of being able to find the path and to understand where to step that when he hit a leaf, it wouldn't go crunch. But me, man, I would just make all this racket. To make all the racket, you can't do any hunting, right? And so he would walk in these woods silently and quietly through these woods, and he'd say, Jared, follow in my footsteps. And I would follow. Wherever he would step, I would step. And if I didn't step where he stepped, guess what you heard? And he would look back and be like, follow my footsteps. Everywhere he would step, I would step. And he just knew. In those days that he'd say, okay, Jared, it's your time to lead. And he followed my footsteps. We'd find ourselves trapped in like brambles. And we wouldn't see any squirrels because I didn't get it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't figure out the path. But my dad always knew where to go. And as followers of Jesus, as disciples of his, it literally means for us to follow in his footsteps. Ephesians 5.2 says, Keep company with Him and learn a life of love. How do you keep company? What does that mean? That means you buddy up as close as you can to Jesus and you keep company with Him. That also means we have a choice not to keep company with Him. That it's your choice to be as close as you can and follow in His footsteps or not. That's your choice. James 4 through 8 says, Come close to God, and guess what will happen? God will come close to you. So, how do you become like Him as you follow in His footsteps? How do you follow in His footsteps? You study His life. 
You study his life. I just want to tell you that if you kind of stuck to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you spent your time reading those things, I think you'd be okay as a follower of Jesus. Not that the Old Testament and all of Paul's writings and Peter and Revelations don't have a lot of stuff for us to learn, but I think that if we just took, stu- just stood and studied his life more than anything else, I think as followers of his, we'd probably get it right. If we dug in to the way Jesus treated people and we modeled that in this world, if we dug into the things that Jesus said and the grace that he lived and the forgiveness, I think we would be okay. Ephesians 5.2 in the message says, Observe how Christ loved us. Really dig into it. Let me give you one last thought. If you want to become like Jesus, how do you do that? Is that you know that you don't create the life. I mean, when I think about living with grace, when I think about living forgiveness and love, I start to feel a little overwhelmed. Anybody else? It's like, that's hard. That's hard to do. That's hard to get right all the time. Well, the good thing is, is I don't have to. That there's one that can come and live inside of us that can give us the strength and the power to live that way. Anybody go outside last night after dark and see the moon? It was banging last night. I mean, it was bright. It was about as full as it can get. And not only, I mean, the moon was shining. It was so it was so bright. Haley and I were driving by one of the mountains. I don't know which one it was. But you could see the whole thing. And I said, I think I could hike that thing tonight without a flashlight. Not that I want to or I'll probably die of a heart attack in the process. So I'm a little out of shape right now. But it's so bright, I think I could without a flashlight. And then I thought, I mean, here's the deal. Is that moon's not really shining anything, Right? There's no such thing as moonlight. Moon doesn't create light. It reflects it. It reflects the sun. And what it, what would happen if we became a bunch of little moons in this world and we began to reflect the sun to this hurting, broken world that we live in? What would it look like if we reflected Christ in us and out of us. Look, we can't create, we can't manufacture light in us, but we can sure reflect that Jesus is light to this world. Colossians 1.27 says, For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Does anybody want to know the secret? This is the secret to life. Christ lives in you. This gives you the assurance of sharing His glory. Acts 1-8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How will you be able to do that? What does the Scripture say? Because of His Holy Spirit in us. And if you've repented of your sins and asked Christ to be Lord of your life, then God placed His Spirit inside of you. That same Spirit that He's talking about to His disciples lives lives in you. We get to be the light to this world. The balm that soothes broken places. When I was in Missouri, 
our church, our youth ministry was having a fish fry as a fundraiser. We might do that sometime, just as a church, have a fish fry. Some good stuff. Not as a fundraiser, but just to be together. Um, I learned how to fry fish pretty good. But that day I was just learning. And I was like 22, 23 years old, and I was in this youth ministry, and these old ladies were cooking all this stuff in the commercial kitchen that we had in our church, and I was in there mixing it up with them, trying to stay out of the way. And they gave me one job. And that one job was to stir the green beans. How do you mess that up, right? Just stir the green beans. And I was back there, and I was stirring my little heart out with that big metal spoon and that boiling pot of green beans. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go talk to a few people. And so I left that spoon in that pot of green beans, and I went out and I started talking to kids, and hanging out with people and just goofing around in the kitchen. And I came back to that pot about 15 minutes later thinking, oh, I need to stir those green beans, and I grabbed that spoon. And guess what happened? That spoon went across, went across the kitchen. And I opened up my hand and instantaneously I had this, this bubble burn across the inside of my fingers and across my palms where I had grabbed that big metal spoon and that pot of boiling green beans. And it was a brutal. And I don't know which one of these old ladies was like a little old witch doctor type you know, woman. But she pulled, she grabbed this pan and she poured some like neon green secret sauce in it. I don't know what it was. And she said, now just stick your hand in this. And I stuck my hand in this weird, gooey, green liquid. And instantaneously, that heat began to be pulled out of my hand. Now I still had a blister, but the pain was just diminishing, diminishing, diminishing. As this balming effect just began to heal. And as I was thinking about Tuesday night and about how people were reacting on Wednesday and Thursday and how people were talking on Friday and Saturday and all the things and posts that I was witnessing on Facebook and the brokenness and the sadness and the frustration and all those things, I thought of that story. I thought of that moment. I thought, God, help me to be a bomb on people's broken wounds. Because people are hurting right now. And I don't care if it's justified or not justified. It doesn't matter. What matters is, is that there is a burn. And that God and Jesus has asked, asked us to be His healing grace in their lives. And regardless if they're weeping for good reasons or not, the Scripture tells us to weep with those who weep. And to love those who need. And that's what I want us to be as a church. Now, we're a small church. This little town of Santan Valley. It doesn't really make up much of the electoral college, if you will. But we all have people that we can love and we can show grace to and we can soothe that burning place in their life. It doesn't matter what religion they are. It doesn't matter what race they are. And it doesn't matter what sexuality they are. And it doesn't matter what political party they affiliate with. It doesn't matter. What matters is there's a burn. And we're supposed to be the balm of Jesus to bring healing to broken places. And that's what I want us to be as a church. And that's what we're going to strive to be as a church.
That's what it means to become. To become love. To become humility. To become forgiveness. To become